Welcome back to another great episode of the Vina Nordi podcast. My name is Jon. The Vina Nordi podcast is the best way to stay up to date with the latest news and inspiring stories relating to how God is at work in the Vina Nordic community. The word disciple could easily be translated, at least until we English language, into learner. When a teenager is learning to drive a car, we just have a on the back of a car there's just a sticky label that just has a red L on a white background. L for learner. So we have on chest and back as disciples, we have the word L, we're learners. So I would say to a 20-year-old, become a lifelong learner. And in following Jesus, learn to him, learn to follow him. And find people who will help you do that in your journey. Today is a special episode where I have the privilege to sit down and talk with John Mumford, who's together with his wife, Eleanor, is serving as one of the global leaders of the Vineyard Movement. John and Eleanor have been part of the Vineyard family since early 80s when they first met the Vineyard in California in John Wimber's church. And from that time on, they have been serving in the national team in the UK. They've been planting churches. They've also been overseeing the national directors of the Vineyard churches. And he has a really humble heart. And in this episode, we're talking about his own life journey, meeting Jesus in, in very young age, how that led him to be part of the Church of England in leadership and later on into the vineyard. And he's sharing a lot of wisdom around leadership, around planting churches, and just a lot of good stories from from back in the days in the vineyard movement. So please join us today, and I hope this episode will inspire you. So very welcome again to this uh, episode of the Vineyard Nordic podcast. We're so happy today to have a guest from outside the Nordic, but we have Jon Manford here, who's part of the leadership of the Global Vineyard family. Very welcome here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here, I tell you. Delighted. Yeah, we've really been looking forward to this. How are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. I am in the West Country of England, where, and it won't come as any surprise to you, it's pouring with rain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually today it was it was a bit rainy here today as well. So, But yeah, I heard you nowadays from covid kicked in you've been living in a farm yeah we at the beginning of covid we moved down here from london where we lived for years and years we moved down here to the west country near exeter in devonshire and have never left and in fact we're converting a barn into a house and we're going to live here until as they say in the salvation army we are promoted to glory (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see it's a, it's a good place to come back to after, I mean, you are traveling a bit still yes, and coming back to that environment must be very good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Heaven in Devon, we call it. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. So for the people who doesn't know you, tell us a little bit short about yourself. We will dig a little bit more deeper later on. Very good. My name is John Mumford. I am, I've just celebrated my 70th birthday. So I'm terribly, terribly old. I married to Eleanor extremely happily for something like 44 years. And we have two grown-up sons, James and Marcus, and they very kindly have provided us with four grandchildren. But I keep saying to them, come on, hurry up, we need more than that. Yeah. (laughs) Because we've got some other friends who are grandparents we need to compete with because they've got more than we have. So we work, we first encountered the vineyard in 1982. We planted the first vineyard in the UK in London in 1987. And then as things developed and vineyards started to grow like mushrooms around the UK and Ireland, we gradually spent more and more time helping and encouraging and supporting and overseeing the vineyards in the UK and Ireland. And then, what, seven or eight years ago, we switched. And a couple called John and Debbie Wright, who many of you will know, they lead the vineyard, in the Trent Vineyard in Nottingham. They succeeded us in leading the UK, and we've moved sideways, as it were, to work with the international vineyard. There's a potted biography that you can, when I am promoted to glory, you can publish as an obituary. Yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) And also, I mean, a lot of people here in the Nordic know you and also know you personally. You have a lot of friends here and you've been serving us as in our conferences. You've been helping the leaders in different ways over different seasons over the years. And 
to start off this conversation, I was thinking a little bit, is there anything you want to, you know, say to us in the Nordic family, some some greetings? I'd love to say, it, it's perfectly true. We have lots of friends in the Nordic and we love you dearly. We've followed Jesus together and served him together for, oh, I forget how many years, probably 2025. Fleming and Anna are very dear friends of ours. And I congratulate you on your choice of leaders. You know some of them, and you you have some fine leaders in the country. And we've just watched with absolute pleasure and delight the way in which God has led you and is leading you and the way things are developing. So it's wonderful. Mm. And, uh, it is a privilege to know you all. Mm. Uh, what do I, have I got a word to you? Yes, I have. Behave yourselves and don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> that sounds good. Hearing just the word from the Lord. Yeah, that sounds good. So we always do some quick questions here as a start in this podcast. And so my first question to you is, what is the best place you have visited over the years of traveling? Oh, Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> yes, <course>. that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sweden is phenomenally beautiful. I think we've been to your summer camp a couple of times in yep. the forest. It's just stunning. You have, the city of Stockholm is is very very handsome indeed, and you do very good chocolates. Yeah, um, curious enough, we've just been to Australia and well, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa to visit the vineyards there. Curious enough, on three successive weeks, they all had their annual national conferences. Oh wow! You know, we managed Perfect. to get all those, which was, and there is a. I mean, they're all beautiful, but uh, there's a particular place in South Africa near Cape Town, a place called Stellenbosch, and near it, a sort of huge amphitheater of vineyards set surrounded by mountains, a place called Franschhoek, and it mm. is stunningly beautiful. We mm. love it. And also, if you were to share one thing that not many people know about you, what would that be? I am left-handed. I. I'm not addicted to it, but I to chocolate, but I do like it very, very much indeed. Yeah. Uh, what else would they not know? They would not know that when I was on holiday in Stockholm in 1959, I fell off a bicycle and cut my leg, oh, and wow. I still have a long scar because my father was a doctor. So I cut my leg. He said, oh, it'll be fine. And he just put a <laughs> bit of antiseptic on it and said, you'll be fine. Every time any doctor has ever seen it since, he said, oh, my goodness, that should have been stitched. My father just said, ah, don't bother, you'll be fine. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a Scandinavian scar on the inside of my left leg. So you're marked by Stockholm forever. I am marked by your yeah. wonderful country forever. and <laughs> proud good. of it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, what would you say is your definition of leadership? Uh, I mean, leadership is, years ago, there was an old soldier's home in England, in a town called Aldershot, which was a, a sort of, then at least not so much now, then was a headquarters of the British Army. And there was a, a home for retired <laughs> soldiers And it was led by Miss Daniels. Mm. And her definition of leadership, I think, is the best I've come up. Leaders, he, she said, are people who have a following. So the way you tell if you're leaders, look over your shoulder. Yeah. And if there are one or two people saying, you know, can you help me? Can you, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And in whose lives you have influence, your mm. leader. That's Never mind the title. There are lots of people I've come across in the, over the years who call themselves, you know, the grand leader of this or the leader of that. And you look at you look over their shoulder, and there's nobody following them at all. So they're not. Uh, uh, so in that sense, my definition of leaders is very functional. Mm. But if you're young parents, by definition, you are leading your children. Mm. If you are at school or high school and you have a friend who is very interested in Jesus and asking you lots of questions and you sit down every now and then, drink a cup of coffee and listen to music and talk about Jesus, you're a leader. Mm. So That's good. it's a very loose. I mean, leaders don't boss. They mm. don't throw their weight around. Leaders serve and they influence. Mm. That's, That's a really good one. That's what they do. They influence. And 
the best form of leadership, and you see it in all the best leaders in the vineyard, and you'd, I mean, for example, you'd see it in Fleming, very obviously. You, they love you, they serve you, and as a result of that, trust grows between you. They give you their love and affection and wisdom. In return, if it's working healthily, you give your followership. Mm. So you never insist. I've never, ever, ever said to somebody, I am your leader and you will follow me. Mm. That, that's the beginning of the Yeah, end. that should be a result of how you're living. Yeah. And Paul's, you know, Paul writing the Corinthians said, imitate me, copy me, do what mm. I do. Mm. And that was the influence he exerted on the Corinthians. Just mm. watch what he did. Mm. I think that's New Testament leadership, and I think that's leadership at its best. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Speaking about your family, you have a son who's a musician, as a lot of people know. And this question might be a little bit tricky one. If you were to choose between your favorite Vineyard song or your favorite Mumford & Sons song, which one would it be? I could not possibly comment. <laughs> I love his music. I have, of course, you'll understand this, uh, in one or two of the songs, a naughty word is used. And I keep having to apologize for that. I have no, he's, he's 35. I have no control of his vocabulary at all. But he loves the Lord. He is a creative individual. He's just, you know, he, he has some wonderful songs. I remember going to one of his gigs, a place called Gas, Glastonbury, which was a big gig in the summer, open air. Mm. And there were 70 or 80,000 there. Wow. And they were in. They were high, headlining. Headlining, that's the word. And there were a huge crowd. And they were singing. He was singing, and the crowd joined in spontaneously. You were made to meet your maker. Wow. And there's another. There's one of the lyrics of one of the songs. And if you ever, you know, one of the other, actually, a friend who's a vineyard leader, and he said, you know, how many people do you know who can get a just a, a crowd at random? <laughs> basically to worship God in the middle of their gig. <laughs> yeah. I, but I mean, a... it's not in that sense. It's not, it's not something we use the term Christian band. And of course, that's not what they're trying to do. But yeah. they have a lot of influence. But, you know, they are leaders and they have influence behind the yeah. scenes and friends of people. Yeah. But that sounds like a good choice of a moment, a, a music moment. Yeah. Yeah. And often people have said to this, Sometimes if they're going to one of their gigs, they've said to us just privately and spontaneously, it feels like it's worship. Yeah. And it probably is, at mm. least to those who have somebody they love and worship. In yeah. The Lord. And he talks about being the truth being hidden in plain sight. Mm. Ah, that's cool. And the last one, if you could choose three persons, dead or alive, that you could have a dinner with. Who would they be? And the dinner would be between those three and you at the same time. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I ha I've got to say Jesus, haven't I? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> I'm teasing. Or the, set aside people we know and love in the scriptures. Yeah. Set, setting aside that, which I think is what you're asking me. I'd be intrigued to talk with probably Alexander the Great. That would be very interesting. I would would love to talk with someone like, if I could ever understand him, Albert Einstein or maybe Isaac Newton, you know, a phenomenal scientist. And, well, Attila the Hun would be quite interesting. I, I don't know how long the conversation would last before he chopped my head off. But it would be <laughs> people who are highly intelligent or have a history of being fine leaders. Mm. Have a reputation, I should say, of being fine leaders. Mm. Thank you. So to move on a little bit in this conversation, I would love to hear some stories from your own life that have shaped who you are today and what were those turning points that yeah. kind of shaped you? Sure. My parents were wonderful Christians. So I grew up in a Christian home. Went to church on a Sunday because we wanted to, read the Bible, you know, Worshipped at home. I mean, all of that stuff. So they both. So I mentioned earlier that I'm 70. I, I assume that I've been following Jesus for therefore for 70 years and nine months, because I must have followed Jesus. I mean, it makes sense to, if my mother followed Jesus. By definition, I did. Yeah. First nine months of my existence until I was you, born. You didn't have a, cho a choice. I didn't have a choice in that one. But 
So I, I just didn't know anything different. I then, aged 13, 14, around about that time, moved from one school. In our system, you move from one school to another. And I went to, in England, we have things called boarding schools, where you not only study at school, but you also live there. And this was very close. It's right in the centre of London, very near Parliament and Big Ben and Westminster Abbey. In fact, it was Parliament Square and, and the House of Parliament on one side of the Abbey. On the other side are the cloisters of the Abbey, and the school is, a, is in that and attached to oh, that. Nice so location. Very nice location. Yeah. So, the Westminster Abbey was, in effect, the school chapel. So the whole school had to go in there, 500 of us, every day before it opened to the public. And, of course, that created, a, amongst grumpy hormonal adolescent boys, it created a lot of resentment and not least hostility to Christianity. A bit like if you and your wife would go on holiday somewhere, say, Bali, where there is, for the sake of argument, yellow fever. You go and get an injection from the doctor. You get, and what he does, technically, is he gives you a very small dosage of the disease, so you build up resistance mm. and immunity, so you don't get the real thing. And that was rather the effect with these boys. You know, you got punished if you didn't go or you forgot to take your hymn book. The microphones didn't work. Nobody sang the hymns. I mean, it was dreadful. So for me, if I was asked, are you a Christian, and asked why, in that hostile environment, it wasn't adequate to say, well, I'm a Christian because mummy and daddy are. You got killed for that. Mm, so yeah. I had to decide for myself. And I remember one very, I, I remember very, very clearly. I remember kneeling down in my small room, like a prison cell, but I knelt down there and I basically said, Lord, here I am. And I, I, I was probably going over an ink what I'd done in pencil as a child, but forgotten. Anyhow, that was the moment when I said, as a sort of, as close to adulthood, that I want to follow you, Jesus. And I remember getting up off my knees and think this strong sense, just out of nowhere, as it were, this strong sense, now I have something and someone to live for. Mm. And that, honestly, I, of course, made zillions of mistakes and, and blunders and failed endlessly. But that sense of something to live and live for and someone to mm. live for has never left me. So you would say like it was not really the environment around you. Maybe that was actually taking you the opposite way in a way because it was a lot of punishment, but it was really like this, you know, on your on your own seeking God where you kind of found him in a way. I, I think so. That, uh, yeah. Yes, that's how I look at it. And curious enough, my parents often laughed because I never really did teenage rebellion as teenagers mm. do because I had so much... I, I was already fighting for my life at school. Mm. So as a teenager, I didn't need to do it at home as well. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So that was just my own experience. My brothers were different, which is fine. But that I still look back to that as very formative. Mm. And, and then actually what happened is, as, as we grew, and you know, I was 17, in my last year at that school, a lot of my friends, you know, like teenagers do, Merging adults, you reevaluate what you've done so far. And they were reevaluating Christianity and they knew I was a Christian. So, a bit like Nicodemus, late at night they come to my room when I should have been revising for exams and they had firing questions about Jesus. Mm. So, I had a wonderful time talking with them all. I loved mm. it. And there were, I don't know what you use in Sweden, but books you would give someone who's interested. You might, would you use? A book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. There were different ones, obviously. Anyhow, I would lend them because my friends couldn't be seen alive or dead with these Christian books. So I covered them all very carefully in plain brown paper. So nobody knew what, everybody assumed they were pornography. Oh. So it's fine. So I had this sort of illegal library, underground library of lending people books. And my father's a doctor, as I think I mentioned, and I was going to study medicine. But in my last year at school, last term at school, I decided that I wanted instead to do pastoral ministry rather than medicine. Mm. So do, do, you remember, do you remember what, what led you there? Were there any A like, whole specific... number of factors. Yeah. One, was, one was just this experience of talking with friends and contemporaries about Jesus. Hmm. Uh, another was 
at the church we I was attending when I wasn't at school, uh, there was a very fine leader in the Church of England, the senior pastor, what we in the vineyard would call a senior pastor, mm. they call a vicar. Mm. <laughs> and he was a fine man and he was, uh, you know, he was a role model. Mm. Someone I, I was very fond of and learned a huge amount from. He was very, very encouraging. Mm. So it was partly seeing his life and his way of life and his ministry. Mm. And then, I mean, that time I wouldn't have used the language the Lord spoke to me, but I'm looking back undoubtedly, and I had several conversations with people as I was mulling this over. Mm. And then because I grew up in the Church of England, the obvious, if I wanted to be, inverted commas, ordained in pastoral ministry, the obvious place to do it was in the Church of England, mm. long before the vineyard. Yeah. And, and so you submit yourself into a sort of selection process. Mm. And again, that was another way, the fact that they, the, the fact that they recommended me for training mm. was another indicator that the Lord was speaking. Yeah. And I, honestly, I never regretted it for a millisecond. Mm. I think it's so good what you what you tell there because we we've been talking about that a lot here in our youth movement here in the Nordic also like in a way lower the bar of you know how do you train new leaders how do you see new young people like I think as you say you, be the the older one just showing yes. them you know loving them taking them under your wings in a way and That's just right. letting them be around you and you know yeah, hang around yeah yeah Watch. just yeah Yeah, because that goes so much more, I mean, it's so much more effective than, you know, trying, as you say, trying to tell them that you're a leader and trying to tell them what to do. But, but yeah, it's always by living out. Some of you will have heard of, he was the person that God used to start this thing called the Vineyard. He died, what, 20 years ago, more than that. And he was an outstanding individual. And he used to tell the story. His grandfather bred horses and mules. And there was a particular sort of horse called a Tennessee walker. It was a particular sort of horse. And in training these horses, if a younger horse, a colt, its gait, you know, the way its legs worked, was incorrect and needed to be training, what the, his grandfather would do would take a more mature, bigger horse and then tie the younger horse to it, <laughs> in effect, The older horse dragged the other one around until it corrected its gait. And in Perfect. some ways, that's what discipleship's about. It's mm. it's a, a more experienced partnering with a less a more experienced person partnering with a less experienced and learning together. And it's interesting. Of all the leaders I've ever served under and worked under, and I've done that a lot in you know in the early years of my life. You know, including John Wimber, there was. Two, I always noticed two things that all these leaders had in common. Number one, they won my respect, and not least because they did, if not literally, they did this Tennessee walking. They were sharing and open and encouraging. Mm. Number one, and number two, they had a sense of humour. Mm. And Wimber had a ridiculous, wonderful sense of humour. Mm. David Pitches, maybe the name of some of you know, who's a leader in the Church of England here amongst the, the charismatics. Uh, he he is in fact the father of of John and Debbie Wright. I was talking about just now. He is Debbie Wright's father. Yes. Wonderful man, mm. but one a ridiculous sense of humour, naughty mm. sense of humour. Great fun, and yeah. and that's just being just demonstrating they're human beings as mm. well as godly spiritual beings. Mm. So I think that was what was most formative for me was watching leaders, and I've always. I don't know why. I've just always been inquisitive. I've always found myself asking questions. Mm. I mean, here with agriculture, which I know nothing about, is fascinating to me. Mm. And I, I probably drive them nuts with questions. Why do you do that? Why, what's, what's the thing? Mm. Yeah, yeah I'm just, mm. I am just a curious person. Mm. But that's a good trait. That's a good characteristic if you're wanting to be a leader. Mm. Ask questions mm. and go on. Go, I always say, go on asking questions mm. until you, if you get an answer you don't like or it doesn't make sense, don't be put off, carry on. The truth doesn't fear prodding and exploring and wrestling with. Go on until you get questions, the answers that in all conscience you can live with. Mm. That's the way to do it. Mm. Which also stops us becoming cult-like because... Mm. 
you go on asking questions. You know, Paul writing to the Romans, you know, at one point he asks rhetorically, what do the scriptures say? Well, go on asking people, what do the scriptures say? You're doing this and this and this, what do the scriptures say? Mm -hmm. Always and going back back to the... Always going back and asking yeah. questions, mm. going back to the scriptures. Mm. Sounds really good. Do you have any more story that you thought of? I think another story would be growing up as I did and doing training and doing a lot with young people, students, and the older range of school children in a, an organization that was wonderful at doing evangelism and pastoral care. We, however, were weak on our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And essentially, I grew up in an environment where we were very hostile to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, significant chunks of the New Testament had to get edited out, mm. you know, demons and speaking in tongues and healing and all that, mm. because we believed it all died out at the end of the book of Acts. It was like a rocket to get the church launched. And then it took me a long time, really, to... I know there was a particular occasion where... Rather to my surprise and perhaps to my annoyance, I was filled with the Spirit and started to speak in tongues. And that undoubtedly was a turning point, another turning point for me mm. in my journey and learning. It was slightly awkward because at that point, I was working on the staff of a church by then. I'd been, as they say, ordained. So I was working on a Church of England parish. But at that point, Eleanor and I were engaged but not married. And we are both agreed in our antagonism to the, you know, things like being filled with the Spirit and tongues. So once it happened to me, I was in a bit of a dilemma as to what we... It was about three, four months before we got married. So I decided to say nothing to her. I didn't want to jeopardize our engagement. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't say anything until we went off. And I, she trained as an art historian. Yeah. So of course, we went to... Venice and Florence on our honeymoon and flying back just as we were coming into land at London Airport. I turned to her and said, my darling, I have got something to tell you, <laughs> which for her presented a dilemma of should she, was it to be heresy or was it to be divorce? <laughs> I'm glad she chose the former. <laughs> yeah, that's a good show. Yeah. So that was very formative. Yeah. And then probably the third thing was rather by mistake, in 1982, I stumbled across the vineyard for the first time. Yeah. And visited them. And you know what it's like. Some people from a different part of the body of Christ come to your church and they minister, or you go and visit them, and, and you become friends and you, you know, the relationship is wonderful, but you never think of. I mean, normal run things. You don't think, well, I'm going to leave the group I'm with and no. I'm going to join them or, or, I mean, there was, you know, you just don't. However, so it was a shock to us having first met the vineyard and then got to know them a bit mm. when then God started to speak to us about transferring ministry from the Church of England to the vineyard. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't so much, I never looked at it as us, inverted commas, leaving the Church of England and storming out and slamming the door. Mm. Because of any issue. There was, I, I love the Church of England then. I still do now. I love what God's doing. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of friends, mm -hmm. you know, we've kept up with over the years. I think it's more that just God transferred us from one pocket to another pocket mm. of his. That's more what it felt like. Yeah. And I think that also shows a good transition where you don't leave because of something that happened, like a bad thing. It's more like you go into something else, not leaving something, more stepping that, into a new that's season. That's exactly right. Yeah. It, it wasn't so much leaving, in my mind. Mm. People in the Church of England might look at it differently because some of them yeah. were very cross with me. But in my mind, it, was much, it wasn't so much leaving. It was more joining, if you see what yeah. I mean. Yeah, and speaking. Well, about I never felt that I gave up being an Anglican, and a lot of you cut me open. I'm vineyard through and through, but I'm also Anglican through and through. Mm. That's that's what I grew up with. Yeah. And for example, some of the liturgy and some of the hymns and so on, I loved, and I still love, and I still use in my own mm. private mm. worship and devotion. I remember a prayer every night of life. When my father was, you know, when we were going to bed, and my father was there at bedtime, which he often was. You know, he would, there's an evening collect, beautiful evening prayer that Cranmer wrote at the time of the English Reformation. Mm. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy, defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. 
And, I, you know, as a child, he would pray that prayer with us, as well as an informal prayer. Mm. And it just never leaves him. Mm. And the beauty, at least in my language, in my culture, the beauty of that language is enriching. Yeah. Not that everybody should do it, but it just, you know, it just yeah. worked. So that was um, encountering the vineyard was probably, for the mm. first time, was probably the third of the landmark of the many, many others. I probably should have mentioned meeting Eleanor. Should I have done that? I yeah, that could have been a good... <laughs> that was life-changing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been downhill ever since. Yeah. Mm. And speaking about the early days in the vineyard for you, you said you met the vineyard when they were visiting you in England. Well, um, no, actually, the, I slightly misspoke. The first time, there was a man, a very gifted evangelist and Bible teacher, wonderful man called David Watson, this was, he died in the early 80s, but mm. he was, he's very influential. He used to do a lot of universities and student missions and things. He's a wonderful, he's a great friend. We loved him dearly. Mm. And I went, he went one stage to the University of Oxford to do a week-long series of mission talks. And we were part of the team that went to help. Mm. And in his just every now and then he kept referring to a place, a church he had visited. And it was actually very near, there's a big, quite famous theological, you would call it a seminary, would you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I know what you mean. Yeah. In California. And he went over there and lectured, you know, once a year, he would go for a week or two. It was called Fuller Seminary, Theological Seminary, which you, some of your viewers and listeners may, have, may be familiar with. Anyhow, he sometimes went as a visiting speaker, and they would put him in a house where he would live while he was doing the lecturing, do you see? Mm. Well, at the same time, he met this man called John Wimber, who was doing exactly the same, was visiting in order to lecture. And he, at that point, was teaching on signs and wonders. So they're just in the residence where they were living. They became friends. You know, they'd have breakfast together and mm -hmm. dinner together at night. Just became great friends. And then David visited his church and so on and so forth. So I bumped, anyhow, a month or two later, David was doing this mission at Oxford University, and he kept on talking about this place somewhere, Anaheim or somewhere, which I'd never heard of in California. Mm. And then I went, we were just chatting, I was chatting with them. And he, I was already get, due to go to the East Coast, to New York, to a conference. And he just tapped me on the chest and said, John, don't come back from America until you have met John Wimber. Well, I had no idea about the size of America. I had no idea who John <laughs> Wimber was. I had no idea where he lived. I knew mm. nothing. So I literally went to the conference. I'm obedient. I am obedient. <laughs> yep. So I wrote to Wimber. You know, in those you won't remember, you're far too young. But in those days, long before emails, you had you wrote things called airmail letters on very thin blue, like lavatory paper. You know, very very thin paper. So I wrote, dear Mr. Wimber, you, we don't know each other, but I believe we have a mutual friend in this fellow, David Watson. He has he has said to me, I should write to you and come. May I come and visit you? May I come? Sent it off. Heard nothing at all. So in my culture, number one, you don't invite yourself. Yep. Number two, if you invite yourself and you don't receive an invitation, you certainly don't turn up. Yep. Yeah. The same I here. The <laughs> I went to the conference in New York, outside New York, Connecticut. And then once I finished, I just literally got on a plane at JFK Airport in New York. All I had was a telephone number and flew west to, to Los Angeles. Got off the plane at Los Angeles, rang the telephone number. Anyhow, I, they were, I ended up staying in the hotel. And about two or three days later, I got a message. John Wimble would like to have lunch with you. <laughs> so I went and I was literally introduced to him, held up my hand and said, look, Mr. Member, you won't know me. And I'm terribly embarrassed because I violated two of my own culture's values, just to explain. Mm -hmm. and, but I said, I did actually write to you, but he obviously never got my letter. I'm so sorry about that. He said, no, 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 no. He said, we got your letter. And we said to ourselves at the time, this feels like the Lord. So if this guy from England turns up, we'll know it is the Lord. <laughs> Which is a novel, I mean, for me, an entirely novel approach to hospitality. Yeah. But anyhow, I just saw, th honestly, John, I saw things. There were two things that struck me just between the eyes, like the stone that took out Samson. I don't mean Samson, I mean Goliath. Just knocked me for six. One was the worship. Here was in what they call intimate. Here was connected worship to God, not just about God. And I'd mm. never come across it before, number mm. one. And number two, 
the spirit of God, I mean, I didn't really enjoy it. I found it, I didn't really like it, but I was intrigued by what the spirit of God was doing in people's lives mm. and in people's bodies. And it was shocking. And at one point, I remember thinking, have I, I'm seriously thinking, is, is, am I part of a cult? Mm. I stumbled on a cult. Was David Watson wrong? Has he got it all wrong? Mm. So it was just because I'd never seen God working in that way. Mm. What were some of those like profound stories that you had from that well, early I, time? For example, you know, so on a Sunday, for example, there were they would use an old high school gym, gym, you know, which had basketball court on the floor, and then they set out chairs, and then chairs they call them bleachers, you know, at an angle either side, and at the far end there would be the stage, and there would be a band. And the band would be playing, there was a pianist there, and then next thing you know, the pianist would get up, because that was John Wimber, and he would get up to preach. You know, again, I wasn't used to that. Mm. And and then he would suddenly talk about people and various conditions or ailments or illnesses or circumstances. He would announce them over the microphone, referring to people in the congregation. You know, there's somebody here who has a pain behind that. What, what we would now call words of knowledge. I'd never seen that before. And prophecy, I'd never seen it before. Mm. And then, you know, he was, he was the cynic in this Englishman was, ah, he's making it up. And then you'd see people respond. You know, he would say, now, if it responds, if this information makes any sense to any of you, just stick your hand up and we'll get someone to pray for you. And, you know, a forest of hands would go up. I think this is extraordinary. And I went to one or two of their small groups, and the same thing happened just with ordinary people in the congregation. We'd never, we'd always wanted that to happen. <laughs> Once I had moved from dismissing all the gifts of the Spirit to believing in them and wanting them, we didn't know that we could train people to do them. Mm, mm, That's mm. what they were doing. Mm. And what would you say, like, I mean, for people listening, maybe a lot of people are from the vineyard and, you know, have been part of, Maybe this kind of ministry, but still, I think it's good to know, like, what would you say are like the, not the ways of doing it, but you understand what I mean? Maybe like, what is the core values around this, you know, whole, like the inviting the Holy Spirit and, you know. Oh, I think, yeah. it's, I think there are several core convictions. Number one, that God speaks today and wants to speak to us far more than we realize. And he'll speak to us. Then I, to start with, I'd honestly, I, John, I'd always assumed, I mean, I had seen one or two people in the UK work ministering in a similar way, but they were sort of the experts and they were, they had no idea how to train others. So they did it all. Mm. So, but of course, if you've ever studied any theology and any of the Reformation in Germany, Martin Luther's constant talking about the priesthood of all believers as mm. opposed to the priesthood of a, a, a small elite. Mm. So the, what the New Testament and the Reformation and Protestantism and the Christianity promised was the priesthood of all believers, but it never really delivered. Mm. So here, was, here were ordinary people doing it. And that was, for me, that was electrifying. Absolutely electric. I knew how to lead someone to Jesus. I knew how to teach them to read the Bible and so on. But to teach them to a minister like this, I just didn't have a clue. And here were ordinary people doing it far better than I. And here was I supposedly um, a pastor. And here were people doing it. And then, of course, the other thing was just the way in which people sometimes and their bodies sometimes respond to the Holy Spirit is way more visible than I had ever. So I remember one <laughs> Sunday evening when I was there, the end of the service, Wimber preached, it was great. And then he'd done inverted commas ministry. And they, when they started to pray for them, they took all the chairs on the basketball court. They took them away and then just ministered to people. And if I close my eyes now, my abiding memory of that one occasion, and there were many like it, is just the whole floor was scattered with bodies and Bibles. You know, just the Spirit of God had come on them, and they were no longer able to stand up. And, I mean, I was way out of my comfort zone. I remember Wimber walking across towards me with a naughty twinkle in his eye and saying to me, well, knowing full well I was, you know, 500 kilometers out of my comfort zone, <laughs> knowing that full well. He's with a smile and a twinkle in his eyes. So, John, 
he said to me, what do you make of all this? And the answer is I was flabbergasted. I just didn't know what to make of it. And he said, well, let me put it to you like this. He said, if I came to you in your home in London, I'd ring the doorbell, you'd open the door, you'd welcome me into your front hall, and then you'd say, you'd show me into your front room where there'd be a sofa or an armchair. And then you'd say to me, sit, you know, please sit, we'd like to sit in the armchair or the sofa, and I would do it. He said, if, um, on the other hand, an elephant came to your house, he wouldn't ring the doorbell, he, he wouldn't, you probably wouldn't open the door, he'd just come straight through it and take it off its hinges. You, and if he went into your front room, you know, if he chose to sit on a sofa or if he chose to sit on a piano, neither of them would survive and there's nothing you could do. Hmm. He said, what we're seeing, and then he referred to what was going on. He said, this is God being God. Hmm. You know, by analogy, this is the divine elephant come to do what he loves to do. Hmm. And you and I have no control. Hmm. Well, that was strangely, strangely reassuring, mm. fun enough, mm. because, and then I would, you know, I was skeptical and, and a bit cynical. I thought this was, you know, maybe this was just hyped up emotion mm. and emotionalism, or it was something, you know, bizarre, or that these people were maybe emotionally or mentally unstable, or, or but the more I talked with them, the more it was obvious that, you know, I was looking for answers that I could use to dismiss the whole thing, just shove them in a pigeonhole mm. and dismiss them as nonsense. Mm. And I couldn't, mm. just from the people I met and the people I talked to. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very inspirational to hear. And I mean, for your for yourself and for like coming back to England after these experiences and like how did this kind of fast forward, like the coming years after this, how did this impact you and your life Happened. well? and? Yeah, so on. Yeah, what happened was shortly after that, I, w I visited in the spring of 1982. Shortly afterwards, a number of people in the leaders in the church in the UK, a couple of Anglicans, a Baptist, a, a Catholic priest, I think, they all got together and were friends and got together and invited John Wimber to come and teach and train. And so Wimber did, started visiting the UK. And there, he only ever came if he was invited by the church. Mm. The existing church there, and would come and teach from the scriptures and do conferences and train people and ministers and, so, and bring teams with him. So that season happened, and I forget how many conferences he did, but a lot over four or five years. And then he went on to Germany and to South Africa and to New Zealand and Australia and, of course, to Scandinavia. Mm. So we just when they were when they were we lived at that time. I'd moved and I was working at a church right in the centre of London, very near Buckingham Palace, where the monarch lives. Mm. King Charles now lives, mm. and right in the centre of London. And often these teams w would come and visit, and when they weren't sleeping or ministering or probably shopping. They just had time to, you know, so we'd have meals together, they'd come for lunch or we'd have dinner together, you know, and we just became friends. Mm. And and it was wonderful and we loved it and, you know, they would tell stories or whatever, whatever, you know, just normal friendship with people. And then after, so we just became friends. Was, and there was no agenda ever from Wimber saying, you know, I want to, he never wanted, it was never his vision to plant churches outside North America. He only ever was focused and had vision for planting in US and Canada. Mm. So for him, when we started, as it were, knocking on the door and saying, can we plant churches in our nations? When the similar thing happened with a couple who were leading in South Africa, another couple in New Zealand, another couple in Switzerland, another couple in Stockholm. You know, these people were gradually, as it were, knocking on the door. The dilemma for him was, what do I do? I release people. Otherwise, is this thing going to be church planting worldwide, mm. or is it just North American? And mm. do I release people and authorize people to do something that I personally, John Wimber, I personally don't have vision for? That was where he moved very slowly and carefully. Mm. And then eventually, the Lord spoke to him, and he talked with the U.S leaders and they all agreed and then eventually we went over to the UK because the job I was doing in central London the contract expired and it was time for me to leave and so I, we went over to Anaheim we started we 
uh, at that point, we thought God had spoken to us mm. about planting a vineyard, but John wasn't at that point going to release anybody to do it. So mm. we were just sort of, we didn't know what to do, really. We were just sort of twiddling our thumbs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, carry on. So and anyhow, whilst we were there, we went for three months, or two or three months, and stayed there. And it turned out, for a variety of reasons, we stayed on for 18 months and do no, 16 months. But during that time, the Lord spoke to John and indeed the leadership team in America to release this thing beyond America. Mm. And speaking about that, I mean, planting churches has been a high priority for the vineyard ever since that, to expand and plant churches. And could you try to describe why this is such a high priority and why we should continue to focus on planting new churches? Well, I mean, you pick up the New Testament and you turn, just for the sake of argument, to well, the end of Matthew's Gospel, what we all call the Great Commission. You know, where Jesus, just before his ascension, he summoned them all and said, go into all the world and make disciples and baptizing them, teaching them to do everything. You know, you, you're there. And Bible-loving Christians right across the body of Christ, of every denomination you and I can think of, every orthodox, historic, biblically-based denomination, all agree that that mandate to the disciples at his time is actually a mandate for disciples for all time. Hmm. So... And then in the, if you look at that text, it says, go into all the world and make disciples. It doesn't say make converts. Mm. It says make disciples. So mm. making converts is the beginning and an mm. essential part of it. Yeah. But it doesn't end there. So you need disciples, not just converts. Well, where on the planet are the factories that manufacture Disciples, where do you make them? Answer, there's only one place where you make disciples, according mm. to the New Testament, and that's the church. Mm. So by definition, Jesus was saying, lead people to me and then disciple them in a community that we call church. Mm. So in our language, evangelism and church planting, planting new churches and developing existing churches is part and parcel of the Great Commission in our thinking. Mm. It talks about baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is the sign of membership of the church, which Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. And personally, why do you love so much when, you know, new churches are planted? What, like, gets well, you up in the morning to do this well, it work? It gets me up in the morning <laughs> because of the prospect of having the opportunity to do what God told us to do, which will fulfill the Great Commission and go into the, all the world and make disciples, mm. preach the gospel, and heal the sick, and cast out demons, and uh, teach people the scriptures, uh, and teach leaders how to lead, and mm. take care of the poor. So uh, all these things are just part and parcel of the expansion of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're, you know, we look at, as you know, in the vineyard, we look at things, we look at Christianity through the lens, the New Testament lens of the kingdom. Mm. This is the advance of the kingdom and the now and the not yet. And that's just a thrilling thing to be, you know, praying for someone who is sick or talking to somebody about Jesus. Mm. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful privilege Mm. to be able Mm. to do that. Mm. And for you, looking a little bit forward in the future, if you were to try to describe what is the legacy, if we were to say, that we as a vineyard movement have, and how could we best steward that times ahead? Well, you've heard me quote John Wimber, and people quote John Wimber, and that's fine, because it's a bit of history and a bit of sort of, you know, part and parcel of our narrative. But the vineyard isn't, you know, he died 20 years ago. As I keep reminding people. So if you're wanting to make a decision, don't pull the Wimber card on me. Oh, John Wimber said 20 years ago. Well, wonderful. Of course he did. But he's not here. And he might have changed his mind. (laughs) So so we refer to him. But basically, if you want to know what the vineyard is and what's it like, I would say to you, I'd say to anybody in Scandinavia, go and look at the vineyards in Sweden or Norway or Finland or Denmark. That's kosher vineyard mm. you know or go and look at vineyards in Bern in Switzerland or in Auckland in New Zealand or in Denver in Colorado or in Santiago in Chile mm. 
mm. or in Sao Paulo in Brazil, you know, on and on your Cape Town or Johannesburg. I mean, you just that's that the vineyard is a living thing, yes, based on our understanding of the scriptures. So it's an orthodox biblical, historic, authentic Christianity as we study the scriptures. It's, it's That's the foundation. And it's, we don't advance the kingdom. God, God advances the kingdom, but we he involves us in the process. Mm. That's what the vineyard is. And it hands down, as it were, from one... We have a number of things we call value, distinctives. Every... Wimber used to talk about everybody gets to play... That was a phrase you may have heard. And by that, he meant, this is not just for the expert, the elite. This is for everybody. Hmm. I never thought, I have started to say earlier, I never thought God would ever speak to me about, you know, the word of knowledge or prophecy or allow me to pray for anybody who's sick and see them healed. Because I honestly, I didn't think I was holy enough. Mm. I didn't think I prayed enough. I didn't think I was godly enough in my behavior. I didn't think I was, you know, I prayed enough or read the scriptures mm. enough or knew them. You know, I just didn't think other people fine, but not me. Speaking and then I discovered that God isn't quite so choosy. <laughs> but I mean, speaking about, I think that's really good what you say. And speaking about that, you know, with everybody gets to play, which is a really like common, you know, word or phrase yeah. that we use and we should use, I think, because it's really good. But combining that when speaking about leadership as well, and you know, raising new leaders, how can we keep that value? Everybody gets to play when raising new leaders. How are those two things coming together in a good way, well, you would say? all these things. I mean, the whole, all the things that you would describe. I mean, if you sat down with somebody and made a list of the things that were characteristic of the way you in Sweden or you in the Nordic vineyard did vineyard. If you just made a list, those would be the same. I say, if I take you anywhere around the world in the vineyard family at this point, the same, they would find different cultural expressions. Yes, mm. of course, of course. Mm. But basically, we've discovered this is a way we want to walk in following Jesus. This is the way we want to do church mm. and be church together. Mm. And we've said to one another, shall we do this together? Would you like to do it together? It's fine if you don't want to. That's absolutely mm. fine. So nobody's coercing you. Nobody's holding a pistol to your head and saying, you've got to do it this way or you're in trouble. Mm. But you have personally, you and your wife, mm. it just as I did with my wife. We said, this is how we want to do Christianity and do it with these people. And mm. it's been passed on to us and you all pass it on to your next generation mm. and your own children. Mm. But That's what, the way it works. Yeah. And what are some core things that you always keep when raising leaders yourself? Like what are the characteristics or the principles that you always try to hold on to, to give over to the to, to leaders? Uh, with leaders, for example, we often talk about two elements to it, which you see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like two different sides of the same coin. One is what we call character and the other gifting. So obviously, if you're going to be a worship leader and you can't, like me, you don't have a word, of, a note of music in your whole body, <laughs> I'm going to be a lousy, useless worship leader. So there needs to be a level of gifting. Mm. Yes. So, And if you're going to be able to teach the scriptures on a Sunday morning, mm. there's got to be, you've got to have a, the ability to study the scriptures and understand them and to be able to get up on, on a stage or get up and at least be audible <laughs> and a little bit coherent. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So there's, there is the gifting side of it, of course. And if you're going to provide food for homeless people, then you've got to have the basic organizational skills and indeed the culinary skills to, you know, of course the Bible talks about that, but the Bible, with leaders, the Bible tends to talk much more about character and godly character. So if when, for example, Moses was overworking and his father-in-law Jethro, this is Exodus 18, came to him, he said, look, you're working too hard. You need to basically train some more leaders and develop some more leaders. And you need to find people who are trustworthy and reliable. Mm. That was the emphasis on, on their character rather than what they could actually do. And similarly, when you go to the New Testament, and Paul gives, in several places, he gives a sort of list of criteria for leadership. It's all about character. You know, husband and one wife, in other words, not an adulterer with multiple wives. You know, humble, not a drunkard, not... You remember, there's a list, mm. uh, First Timothy chapter 4, chapter mm. 3. Mm. 
what there's only in that whole list of things there's only one thing able to teach but that there's only one thing about gifting all the rest is about character mm. so to answer your question in develop, in helping leaders emerge our priority is helping them to understand the scriptures helping them to develop godly character help them to learn to realize that leadership isn't about as i was saying much earlier it's not about bossing but it's about serving mm. and by and large, your experience, my experience is the same, that people who are good followers make the best leaders mm. because they understand how it works. And so that's what we're wanting to do. And you can't develop churches without developing leaders because, you know, in, if you ever studied biology at school, you had some animals, some creatures that had all their skeleton on the outside, mm. you know, a lobster or a mm. crab has all the structure on the outside. Mm. Whereas human beings, you and I, and mammals, have all the structure on the inside. So if we didn't have bone structure, we'd just be blobs of protoplasm on the floor. Yeah. And churches are like that. Mm. Churches, they call it an endoskeleton, an inside skeleton, as opposed to an exoskeleton, which is on the outside. Mm. We have structure on the inside. Church is the same. And churches need structure. Not too much, but they need some mm. in order to be able to do it. Mm. Yeah, I like that picture that we need the structures to be able to be free. To be more free, we need the structures because yeah, without know. structures, it's impossible to terrified. be free. Some people are terrified. Some people are terrified. Oh, we can't have structure. We can't have structure. Well, don't be silly. You don't say that of a human body. Mm. Then why say it of a church, a collection? Of, you know, that's just the way things work, the way God's designed it, in my view. Mm. But again, all of that in, in developing churches and developing leaders and training them, there's an equal emphasis, at least, mm. on godly character and how we behave and how we interrupt and how you treat your wife and mm. how your wife treats you and how I treat the person who serves me in the supermarket mm. quite as much as how we, how we treat people we lead in the church. Terribly important and very exciting when, you when we get it right. Yeah, so good. And speaking about you and Eleanor's commitment over the years to serve the Vineyard family, what is the passion behind for you? Looking back all these years and also today and for the future, what are like well, the drivers? I think, I think, quite honestly, John, I think if Eleanor were here, we would both say that we love each other and, but, and especially we love Jesus more than we've ever done. We love mm. the Vineyard. We love what God's doing. We love the whole church. But we love what God is doing in the area in which he's, as it were, planted us, shoved us. And I am, you know, I believe that the world needs more Catholic churches, more Anglican churches, more Baptist churches, more Pentecostal churches, more Salvation Army, more Lutherans, more, you know, on and on we go, and more vineyards. Mm. Just because that's the, that's, as people come to Jesus, which is what we all long for and pray for, mm revivals and everything else, got to have places where we can care for them and mm. nurture them in their faith so they can nurture other people in their faith. So it's basically, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, you know, entrust to faithful men and women. You know, what you've seen in me, you do, then you entrust it to others. That's mm. basically what we're talking about. Mm. That's the work. So the work that Ellen and I do now, which is working alongside all the different vineyard. I mean, there are vineyards in something like 90 different countries. There are established vineyard families in 16 at the moment, but that number is expanding all the time. Mm. And so people say, so uh, technically, I, I think my title is Vineyard Global Coordinator. I think that's right. Mm. Or some people say the Global Director. I don't use, I don't care what you call it. Mm. But our job, it's no help to me, John, if I get up and say, of the vineyard in Brazil, which has its own leadership and a fine couple leading it, national directors. It's no help to them if I get up and say, as the global coordinator, I have a vision for Brazil. Other in parallel to theirs. That's no help to anybody. Mm. It's destructive. So if you ask me, do you have a vision for Brazil? You bet I do. Mm. I have a wonderful vision for Brazil. What is it, John? It's that Milton and Luciana, who are leaders, and their team, 
My vision is that those hear from the Spirit of God and go do in Brazil what God's called them to. That's and, my vision. Yeah, and that's really on spot what also I really like with the vineyard movement that the leaders may before you know the Nordic, you know, a country or an area is not setting out the direction for that area. It's more like, okay, we are here to support you. We're here to kind of train you and assist you in any way for the calling that you feel that God is telling you about. And I really yeah. like that way. It's, that's exactly yeah. right. We think you, for the sake of argument, you in Brazil or you in Sweden are mm. just as able to hear the Lord's mm. Spirit of God speaking yeah. to you. And you that, can, yeah, then. when I've been around different, you know, places, I think that is a significant thing for the vineyard. Not maybe only in the vineyard, but it's very strong in the vineyard. I think that very way strong. of looking we into leadership deep. and planting churches and everything. Partly because God has put us, God invented different cultures. Mm. And God has put us in different cultures. Yeah. And the truth is, the British or the Americans or the Swiss or the Chileans or the Australians don't know, don't understand Nordic culture. No. And so if a church is going to take on the shape of, if it's going to work properly and as it should do, you know, great back to the Great Commissions, Jesus said, go into all the world. What it actually says there, go into every well, it's the English word we get. It's the Greek word is ethnos. Mm. The English word is ethnicities. Different people groups, different mm. tribes, different. To go into now, their differences, they will express themselves differently. Mm. And this is one of the beautiful things. So, the core of what a vineyard looks like is the mm. same around the world. But a vineyard in Gothenburg, in Sweden, for example, and a vineyard in, let's say, Nairobi in Kenya, in some respects, they're going to be very, very similar. In some respects, they're going to be very, very different. Mm. And that's how, in our view, that's how God intended it. And what the sociologists tell us, and they're quite right, if I live in one culture, I can't tell you what the vineyard's going to look like definitively. In every respect, in another culture, that's mm. and we trust you to do that, and you trust us to do that. Mm. And if we go off the rails, we love each other enough to sit. So if you in Sweden invent a fourth member of the Trinity, mm. we'll come and have a little chat with you. Yeah, <laughs> because, and that would be and that would be helpful if you did actually. that. Would be helpful, <laughs> and we'll come armed with baseball bats. You know, yeah. we'll we'll knock you around. I mean, I'm joking, yeah. but it's you know there are parameters. Yeah. And abiding by the scriptures is what we all agree to. But mm. if, as sometimes happens, people stray, mm. you know, Paul again, Paul talked to Timothy about guarding the gospel. Mm. We need to do that. And mm. if the gospel is, if you attempt to add something to the gospel, you and I know that by definition mm. that's subtracting. Mm. So if that situation arise, arises, let's come and talk. And if we're doing something that you see that is crazy or mm. unbiblical, if you love us, Mm. You'll come and tell us. That's the way this thing is going. It's not having a you know a fat rule book mm. that we throw at people when they do something naughty. Mm. This thing is relational. We want to work together and love one another, mm. and yes, occasionally correct one another. Mm. Mm. You'll correct me, and I'll correct you mm. because we love. It doesn't mean I you're wrong and I hate you. <laughs> it's yeah, just you're wrong, yeah. and don't do that. That's not going to help you. Yeah. It's not going to help you. You know, I mean. We've been doing this thing now for the vineyard around the world for about 30 years. We've probably made every mistake in the book, if there were a book. Mm. So, I mean, we do have a bit of experience now. Mm. Largely, I mean, I'll come and sh happily share with you all my mistakes. Mm. I could write a book about And, you know, maybe you could, it would help you to learn from them so you don't repeat them. Okay. But let's have a culture where we can make mistakes because we're going to... What is it they say? If you're not making mistakes, you're not doing enough. Yeah. And actually, final advice I would ask you, I would choose if you would like to give an advice to a 20-year-old person, you know, as we also talked about just now, about, you know, trying and fail and, you know, and just being, I mean, dare to step in in whatever you sense that God is calling you to or some crazy idea you have had or whatever. What would be an advice from you to a 20-year-old person? Oh, the word disciple could easily be translated, at least I'm talking the English language, into learner. I don't know, do you have in Sweden, when a teenager is learning to drive a car, do they have a label on the car, on the back of the car, which says what? Yeah. We In the English language, we just have a on the back of a car, there's just a sticky label that just has a red 
L on a white mm. background, L for learner. Yeah. So we have on chest and back as disciples, we have the word L, we're learners. Mm. So I would say to a 20-year-old, become a lifelong learner. Mm. And in following Jesus, learn to him, learn to follow him. Mm. And find people who will help you do that in your journey. Mm. And what would you say to a 35-year-old person? Absolutely the same. But I would also say, remember you're, remember, you're a minister of Jesus. You're not a Messiah. So you can't do everything. Mm. You'll make mistakes. Mm. Um, love people and serve and see where God takes you. Study the scriptures. Mm. If you're married, be faithful to your wife. Mm. You know, if you're not married, don't be sleeping around. If you are married, don't be sleeping around except your wife. If you are married, then sleep or sleep with your wife as much as you like. But mm-hmm. you know, so we are human beings. So bear in mind you're a human being, then learn to be secure. I've often said if I could wave a magic wand over leaders and eradicate just one thing, do you know what that would be? Insecurity in leaders. Mm. So learn to be insecure in God. Mm. And I we think being this. secure in God is really trying. And not waiting, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And what would you say to a 50-year-old person? Exactly the same. Yeah. What tends to happen, doesn't it, is as we start off with having a lot of energy and no wisdom. And then as we get experience, hopefully wisdom rises. But as we get older, so you end up sort of swapping. So you have less energy, but hopefully more wisdom. And so if you're 55, you're somewhere in that journey. But keep on learning. Keep on doing, keep on accumulating wisdom, asking God for wisdom, and find people to give it away to. Mm. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 2, entrust to faithful people. Give it away. Yeah. I mean, I've been uh, so much enjoying speaking with you today, and I also think the people that listen will get a lot of good things from this talk. If you were to end off by designing or write something on a billboard for the whole world to see what would you want that billboard to show or say? Hey, I've got a story for you. I met a man some years ago who had been in the British Army and he'd been serving when the British Army were engaged in operations in Afghanistan. There was a big base called Camp something, or I forget what it's called. And in it, do you know what I mean by sea containers? Those big things, that you know, container ships, those big steel things mm, where mm, they mm. transport goods. Well, yep. they, had got a, they had got a whole lot of these sea containers that they had made into offices so that they could, you know, work in the middle of this camp. It was protected. And there was a guy who I knew who wasn't a Christian. And he found himself sharing, he was an officer, he found himself sharing a container with a padre. That's a pastor who's in the army, Mm. which was rather embarrassing because he wasn't a Christian. Anyhow, one day, and it happened from time to time, the camp, Camp Bastion it was called, the camp came under mortar fire from the enemy, firing rockets. So they all, the alarms went off and they all immediately jumped under the under their desks because it was mm. safe. It, 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 he said it was scary. And then the attack finished and they all clear signal. And so they sort of dusted themselves down and climbed out from under the desk. Mm. And the padre, the chaplain, turned to this guy who was not a believer and said, tell me, when you were under the desk, what did you do? And he said, I confess that... I prayed to God, I'm so frightened. I prayed to God, he said. Mm. And the chaplain didn't do anything, just said, isn't he wonderful? That's so good. I would have a big board. Isn't God wonderful? God wonderful. Marvelous. Whatever that's, word you want to use. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that's a good end of this talk. And thank you so much, John, for thank being for here with us me. today. I mean, it's been such a blessing. Say hi to Eleanor and I mean God bless you and all of your work in ahead of time. Thank you very very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to follow the Vina Nordic movement and everything that is happening, you can go to Facebook and Instagram and follow us under Vineyard Nordic. You can also help us by subscribing to this podcast on the different podcast platforms. When doing that, you will also get an update every time we have a new episode out. So again, thank you and see you again next time. Bye bye.